Thanks for downloading the inaugural Protect Our Province Alberta Twitter Spaces as a podcast. We had some technology problems to start off this evening, and as a result, our land acknowledgement was cut off. We are grateful to live and work in Alberta, a province on the traditional territory of 48 different First Nations and the unceded homeland of the Métis Nation. My name is Chad Oman. I'm the technical producer for Pop AB. Welcome to the podcast version of our inaugural Twitter Spaces held on Thursday, September 22, 2022 at 7 p.m. Mountain Daylight Time. Please note, some of the views and opinions shared by listener guests in this podcast do not reflect the views of Protect Our Province Alberta. When there are thousands of hospitalizations from preventable disease, it does not really matter what their profile is. Now, on to the conversation. You know, it's been 20 days since Dr. Hinshaw last tweeted. Um, and yeah, I expect this to be more or less a conversation. Um, I don't know which phone my headphones are attached to. Um, I expect this to be more or less a community conversation centered around COVID-19, our healthcare system, and ways we can help make our spaces that are not on Twitter safer to be in. We encourage everyone in the, in, the, in the conversation to feel comfortable in contributing, asking questions, and otherwise adding commentary you feel is important to the conversation. Um, speaking on, I, I'm speaking on behalf of myself, uh, a resident of Alberta, not that of my employer, as some people know I work in healthcare. Um, it's important to know that we are recording this. It's going to be published to our website, popab.ca, and to Apple Podcasts. So if you do want to ch- chime in, um, please no swearing or abusive language. Uh, and also, uh, closed captioning is also available uh, via the Twitter space. So tonight we have some really special guests as well, Dr. Goja Gasparoz. I'm so sorry. I'm going to do that, and I'm so sorry. Uh, developmental biologist and researcher with the University of Calgary. Also, uh, Janea Matheson. She's a mother by day, vax hunter by night from Edmonton. Um, and we've got a couple other Pop Alberta folks kicking around, I can see in the uh, in the chat, in the uh, attendees. So really cool. Um, also, I'm going to put a link to a uh, resource on our website that we got together for Goja's presentation. Um, it is her slideshow, um, so you can check that out. I'll tweet that out right now. Oops. And Goja, did you want to did you want to introduce yourself? Uh, yes. Thank you for inviting me today, and thank you everybody for coming. Um, good evening. My name is Gosia Gasparovich. I'm developmental biologist. I'm not doing okay. So whatever I talk. COVID is my own analysis that is not related to what I do at the University of Calgary. And so I will try to do a slideshow via radio, but I would like to summarize basically where we are now at, uh, what is the situation with COVID. And basically we are still in the pandemic and in Canada. So when you look at the graph of, uh, world in data, um, in Canada, daily deaths, we can see that in Omicron waves, so this was wave number five, six, and seventh, we had almost 15,000 deaths in Canada in this wave. So it's bigger num- bigger absolute number than the second wave deaths, which was almost 14,000. So people are still dying with COVID uh, or from COVID. Uh, the number, the deaths are increasing. Like, either stable or increasing in Canada, so we don't have downward trend in it, and they are at high level. So every day, almost 60 Canadians are losing their lives to COVID. Also, monthly deaths are 
almost the same as they were. They are almost the same this year in Canada. They, actually, in Canada, they are higher than they were last year per month and two years ago per month in 2020. And in Alberta, the number is almost the same. So per month, we have 180 deaths. This year, last year, we have 190 and it's only till September, the, the calculation is only till September 7th. Um, when we talk about, about hospitalizations in Alberta, we have very high levels of people hospi hos hospitalized with COVID. Um, the thing that changed Is it muted all the time? Uh, no, you're good, you're uh, good, Gosha. Okay. So the thing that changed now with people being vaccinated and with Omicron having different clinical manifestation is that we definitely have less people in ICUs. So that's different. But we have much more people in hosp hospital from COVID. So we had huge wave uh, on BA1, then BA2, and now we are in BA5. And this wave is continuing. So it went high up and it's it's going and the level is the level of hospitalizations is almost like it's more than 800 people in a hospital and in a given moment which is which is really high if you see the graph uh, at alberta alberta health uh showing hospitalizations you can you can see that the level is really high and there's almost no risk for healthcare system so before we had during the summer we had those valleys where at least there was a little bit less of patients in hospitals. And then, so we have deaths, we have hospitalizations, but the big thing is that our disabilities, so people are getting long COVID, and it's not a small number. Uh, so long COVID is a constellation of symptoms among many organ systems, uh, develops after COVID-19 acute infection, uh, and fatigue is the commonest. So among children, extensive review in scientific reports uh, estimated analyzing different different uh, publications that around 25% of children who were infected with COVID develop long COVID. And among adults, and it's analysis done by Public Health Ontario, 51 to 80% infected people can develop long COVID. So it's not, there are not small numbers. Um, and yeah, and reinfections don't. So each we have to think also about cumulative risk. So if we've been infected once with COVID, that that doesn't mean that we will we will be immune forever for it. So because immunity wanes and because new variants are emerging all the time that escape immunity. So basically, each hit is a risk of developing lung organ damage, and it's even if each additional hit will be le less risky, then we have to think about the cumulative risk that is adding up. And then we can hear a lot of people, sometimes sometimes even public health officials, comparing, comparing risks of COVID to risks of influenza, that, oh, it is like influenza. But it's not. It's, it's not even good. Uh, 
there's an analysis uh, recently Dr. Diego Bassani calculated on the base of uh, Professor Tara Moriarty data that for children infected with COVID, the risk of dying is six to nine times higher than for, inf- for children infected with influenza. So it's much, much higher. And for older age groups, it's the, this, this multiplier is even higher. And then, okay, if you could see the next graph um, in, I don't know, somewhere on Twitter. <laughs> uh, What's your, oh, what slide are you on again, Goja? I would like the one with influenza. So influenza waves in Alberta from 2017 to 2022. Oh, that's the one with the big gap. Yeah, that'll be slide six for everyone that's looking at it online. So basically, also there is this argument that, oh, we cannot focus on fighting with COVID now because you, we have to care about viruses, for example, influenza, which is very illogical argument because whatever, what works against COVID works even stronger, stronger against flu. And we could see that when basically for almost two years, we, we had no flu in Alberta. So when, when COVID pandemic sta- started, and we had the restrictions in aiming to stop COVID, to stop the spread of influenza. But it reappeared, and it reappeared after we decided to live with COVID. And after February 13th, when mask mandates were removed from, from the schools. So I think it's, it's very interesting. And also, but influenza started, but it's still small. So like, while we had at the same time big waves of, uh, of SARS-2, and so the thing that I think is really important to understand is that individual risk is probability of getting infected times probability of severe outcomes if infected. And public health seems and, and politicians seems to focus on probability of severe outcomes if infected. And yes, with vaccination and with Omicron, they went down. But our probability of getting infected is almost like 100% now. Uh, not exactly, but if it goes about life like in 2019, probably in one, within one week, it's 100% that one will get exposed to COVID and very probable that one will get infected. And this probability was very low earlier in the pandemic. So, and... This probability, so probability of severe outcomes if infected, we have very little control about it because each health, and we cannot do much about that, uh, and access to hospitals and therapeutics, we cannot as individuals do much about this. We can and vaccination. So that's the only thing we can do. We can vaccinate ourselves and take as much boosters as we are eligible for. But probability of getting infected. There, like governments can do and public health can do a lot about it. So there are policies limiting transmission that can reduce solutions like cleaning the air. So if community spread is low, our probability of get- getting infected is very low. Type of work we are doing and school we are going to, mask mandates, when there are mask mandates, probability of getting infected, it was shown that in some situations go like three, they are three times less, three times smaller. Indoor air quality, if we have HEPA filters in the works that we work to and good air ventilation, good ventilation, our risk of getting infected is lower too. 
knowledge. We have to know that COVID is dangerous and we have to know how to protect ourselves. If we don't know it and we believe that COVID is nothing and we believe that we are safe without masks, then our probability of getting infected increases. And of course, social economic status is a big, big thing here. So people who are wealthy have less chances of getting infected. And so now we are in a situation when, so we don't, we are not in endemic, because to be in endemic, our the R value of COVID would need to be around one. So it's the stable, the sta stable spread that doesn't go up or down. So that's not the case. And we have the variants that are emerging all the all the all the time that escape immune, our immunity. So what Dr. Diego Bassani um, conceptualized is that of a piling of epidemics. So epidemic after epidemic of new and new and new and new variant. But what I thought that we can do about it is we can spread them out. So we can make each wave smaller and more sparse. And we can do it by basically by dampening those dampen those waves and make them less dense by using airborne precautions, so ventilation fusions to monitors wearing the N95 and higher respirators, by using vaccination pro proactively, so getting boosters early on and to many people. So push for international for development and distribution of intranasal vaccine. So the vaccines that prevent uh, infections, they are already. I read some that they are, they are available in China and developed in China and in India, but that was not yet. And of course, tra testing, tracing, and isolating. Then we can prevent or delay the seeding of new variants or importing them from other other places in the world by combination of travel quarantine, vax passes and testing, and also by using airborne precautions on airplanes and at airports. And okay, two last slides uh, are showing that actually when we use mask nights, have, we can have three times less infections and three times less hospitalizations. That was shown by Alberta Health. Uh, they compared, and those are slides that they prepared around February 7th, so before dropping mask mandates in schools, showing that, um, that regions with mask mandates in schools uh, have three times lower hospitalizations of adults. Also, three times less schools. So that's a really powerful tool to reduce reduce hospitalizations, and, and and hospitalizations are really high now in Alberta. Um, so another thing I would like to talk about and just cite what um, the doctor, the doctors from Protect Our Province Alberta uh, shared with me. Unfortunately, they can. Not participate today because they are sad. so basically our doctors and nurses are exhausted they, they are exhausted beyond like understanding of it uh, so I will just read it so many many sites in the province have run out of overcapacity space overcapacity space is basically basically adding stretchers to rooms the space is less than ideal as there is no call bell oxygen tubing basic hospital necessi necessity so now we can run out even of those less than ideal overcapacity spaces. 
In some locations, critically ill patients are seen on the outpatient wards. And those are types of wards that sometimes nurses for years didn't practice putting IVs into, into, into people. Ambulances cannot offload patients in a timely manner. Surgeries are, surgeries are being postponed to accommodate for bed space. However, the backlog of surgery due to lack of staff is now estimated at three to five years. So we can think about it as patients, that what, what is consequences for us for that. General practitioners are leaving the system and the province. Children hospital emergency nurses are desperate, demoralized and underweight and under way too much strain and that wait and wait times are crazy for children. It's pretty desperate at all the large sites really. Just no capacity in the system, the terribly difficult worker makes it harder. Becomes a vicious cy cycle as overworked he healthcare workers burn out and leave making it all worse. So I will summarize it that basically we are in the situation when our health as a population is worse than it was in 2019 and is going and going forward we are going to get sicker and sicker as each hit with SARS-2 is gonna make us sicker it cannot heal us like if we are getting hit with COVID we are not getting healthier and at the same time our healthcare system is collapsing so so I think it's pretty terrible and I don't feel competent to speak to what has to be done in this province to uncollapse the healthcare system. So I cite uh, Project Our Province Alberta Medical Doctors without a declaration that the system is in true disaster mode, the province collapse system solution will occur. Government needs to openly admit the system is in desperate state. Time to move from discussions of system sustainability to system survivability. Then we can collectively work on temporary bridging solutions while the big piece long-term solutions are implemented. But what I can talk about and what I know to what to I, I know how to reduce the the impact of it how to reduce the impact of the pandemic and we can do it first of all we need to acknowledge the reality so no more misinformation on, or, or disinformation that, that COVID is nothing not dangerous that it's like a flu and we need to strong and then we need to strongly go after transmission and we know how to do it we have to acknowledge that COVID is airborne and use airborne pre precautions use testing tracing isolating and good information about how to protect oneself from COVID plus proactive vaccinations. Okay, that's it. Thank you very much. It's quite the situation we're in for sure, Goja. Um, wish there, there was some answers. <laughs> um, I shared a tweet from Dr. Bakshi um, about uh, the state of medicine units in Edmonton. I'm really struggling, you know, as, as someone who's supposed to be good at tech, um, I'm really struggling tonight. Um, I did share a tweet uh, thread from Dr. Bakshi, um, who uh, has been a member of POP for a while, well, since the beginning, um, and talking about medicine units um, as well. Um, yeah, you know, I just took a look at some of the emergency department wait times, and actually, you know what, they're pretty reasonable at, you know, four and a half, five and a half salaries now um it's really something um i'd also like to introduce um Jenea. did you want to pop on and say hello 
Sure, I can hop on. I'm just kind of here hanging out if there's anything to do with vaccines. Obviously, the bivalent was released in Alberta this week. And we've recently had the 5 to 11 boosters and, you know, the vaccines for the littles. And not a lot of media about it. And as Goja said, that's one of the things you can do as an individual. So just here to support that. That's awesome. Yeah, um, there was actually one question from before the space started. Um, a particular person with the handle West Coast is best, and I'd have to agree, asks, um, do we think the Moderna BA45 and Pfizer over 12 years of age BA45 will be approved soon? They, they're debating what to do for their compromised kids, and they noted that they've been submitted for, uh, for approval, and wondering what your thoughts were on that. Yeah, I mean, who really knows with Health Canada? They're not all that transparent in their process. From the discussion I've seen, it it seems that they're waiting for the human clinical trial data for the BA4 and 5 Moderna and Pfizer vaccines. So I think until we see that data, it would be unlikely that they'll approve it. But they could always surprise us. Uh, both BC and Alberta have seen that Pfizer BA1 bivalent will be approved soon. They've both included that in their rollout plan for 12 plus, because right now, obviously, Moderna's only 18 plus for the new bivalent. So it's kind of wait and see what they do. I guess they could surprise us and approve the BA4 or 5, but I'm nervous to get my hopes up about that. Totally. Yeah. No, that's a good answer. Thank you. That uh, hopefully helps answer some questions. Um, so let's turn to the floor. Uh, uh, you know, if anyone had any comments, any questions, any thoughts that, you know, they wanted to bring up today, um, definitely uh, go ahead and hit the little microphone button in the bottom left, and you can go ahead and go ahead and request. Uh, again, we want to make sure this stays PG, so we'll make sure there's no swearing or any abusive language, and I'll remove you. Um, I think we have somebody here. Um, balanced Life. Hi, how are you? Hi, sorry, did you say Balanced Life? I think that was yeah, you, yeah. Thank you so much. I appreciate the insights that were provided during the, during the uh, presentation of data. Of data. Um, I wanted to ask, uh, I believe it was uh, Malgorzata uh, Gosia. Yes? I th yep, yep, she can go. Thank you. Um, what, yes, what's you. the patient profile for the overburdening of the healthcare systems that are requiring for, for um, reprofiling, uh, you know, patient population with regards to numbers? What's, what is the age group? What's the, just the general patient profile? So I would need to, I don't think that Alberta has really presented broken by the current patients, broken by age, unfortunately. So I don't have answer to this. But what I know that still younger people are hospitalized as well. And on Alberta health statistics, there there are there are like all time uh, population like you can go to the severe outcomes and then the, it's broken by age range but 
they have numbers all the time. So from the from the beginning of the pandemic till now. So I don't know how it changes over over time in each age group. But sure. what is really interesting is or quite terrible is that uh, kids like babies basically below one year old, uh, their percentage, population percentage, like rate of hospitalizations and ICUs are as high as people who are over 50 years old. So 50 to 70 years old, uh, which is pretty bad, I think. And what's the general course of treatment that's being provided to those pediatric patients? I don't know. I'm sorry. I, I'm I'm no. not working there. Then. Okay, I think that you know the reason I asked is really simply is just to decipher specifics with respect to how many patients are in the high risk category for age stratification, and then as well making sure that the pediatric patients are receiving, you know, early infection interventions to make sure that there's no disease progression. You know, I, under mm -hmm. I, I understand that there's aspects of COVID that, you know, with the sequela and, and the more data that's coming out, there's a lot more information about, you know, recurring infection and, and the potential for it actually inhibiting T-cell. Um, I, I get all that, and it's concerning without question. But unless the data is presented in a manner, and this is by no means an indictment on you, I want to be very clear, okay? But I am going to say it in, in any way unless the data is presented in a more comprehensive manner, it can't be used by people. You know, it can't be, you know, planning can't be done. So while the information is available, if it's being presented, it should be presented comprehensively. Um, I think that that would just be more helpful. So that was it. And, but, I, but I want you to know your information was helpful and I appreciate the presentation and how you presented it. And I appreciate the space and the expertise. So thank you. Yeah, thank you for your question to, and, and your comments. So actually, that's something I would love to have on Alberta Health Statistics, really the things broken by age range. And I asked my colleagues in, in British Columbia and a friend shared with me the, it, the data broken by age range, but for British, British Columbia, both for hospitalizations and deaths. So I could, I could look at at this and actually what was uh, what you could see there is that but also it's BC CDC doesn't share it like that right so it's the individual person making having spreadsheets and, and, and trying to figure it out uh, and actually the hospitalization number increased increased during um, so since January so in Omicron waves uh, for for children uh, and for elderly people, for people in mid-age range, uh, it, it stayed more or less as, as before. Right. Um, Primar so primarily what we're seeing, primarily what we're seeing is solid organ transfer. I'm sorry, so solid organ transplant patients that are dealing with complications with respect to COVID specifically mm -hmm. and the elderly. With respect to the kids, we do see um, recurring infection. Uh, child eight years old. I'm just you know advising on one case I'm aware of. Uh, child eight years old gets COVID, minor symptoms. Early intervention was enacted, um, and on a multitude of levels, uh, infection lasted about eight days. Uh, symptoms never progressed beyond the standard beginning phases or phase one of the COVID infection cycle. 
and uh, and then some 70 days later, same child, COVID, less symptomatic, um, early interventions were enacted, and a uh, child came in and out of it swimmingly. So that's a healthy eight-year-old child, but when you have a child who's dealing with you know, immunocized, you know, taking Remicade because they're on Crohn's or something. You know what I mean? I, I understand that those things can can inhibit uh, issue. But most of what we're seeing primarily is solid organ transplant patients, patients who are on immune suppressing drugs or the elderly. So when you're talking about um, early intervention, what, what are you mentioning? Because I know um, Paxlovid or rem- Remdesivir is very difficult to get in Alberta. Right. Yeah. Well, a child would not be given Paxlovid or, or Malnupiravir. Um, a child would be, you would, <laughs> to be fair, it's, it's, it seems almost more homeopathic. Um, but if you look at the frontline uh, COVID kiddo, critical care alliance, FLCCC, um, there's a doctor, Dr. Pierre Corey, who's, who's become, you know, quite the, quite the lightning rod for information, but, you know, time and time again has been proven correct that early intervention where it's, and Dr. Peter McCullough, who again, another lightning rod doctor, who's talking a lot about things that people don't like to hear, but with respect to early interventions of, you know, nasal flush and perinidium mouthwashes and the appropriate vitamin D levels in your children with respect to nutrition, those types of things, it seems homeopathic, but those things are actually effective. Now, are they, are they, for vaccination? I don't believe so. Are they a replacement for, for medical interventions when necessary? Absolutely not. But with respect to a large population base that may benefit from that, it's now, now been proven that those things actually are effective and I've seen them enacted. So, gotcha. okay. Well, that's, that's great. I, uh, um, I hate to cut you off there, but uh, we do have to keep moving on. We do have other oh, speakers. Thank you. Thank you so um, much for having this space. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for your time. Um, looks like we have Zayad. Great to see you. Great to see you. Hopefully hear from you here. Um, what did you have to bring? Thanks, Chad. Yeah, I added a few tweets to the Nest. Um, so uh, that would be, um, you know, you can scroll across to see them uh, at the top of the spaces. Um, so uh, just kind of looking from the very right, um, so right after um, Dr. Gasparovich's slideshow um, and uh, Dr. Bakshi's uh, warning about um, hospital uh, overflow, um, I have one where I responded to a, uh, a CTV Edmonton reporter um, oh, about yeah, Kira. The, Kira, yeah. So about the um, uh, mystery res- respiratory illness and showing from the University of Calgary. Uh, Center for Health Informatics wastewater tracking that it's not, not blue. Um, so I show the Edmonton influenza and the Edmonton uh, uh, SARS-CoV-2 um, tracking in the wastewater and show that um, um, uh, flu is zero, um, whereas wastewater is growing. And what we saw from the Alberta school mask lawsuit is that the Alberta government um, Alberta Health has studied the outbreaks in schools, and for example, with Riverside School in Edmonton, uh, they found the school outbreak then preceded an outbreak in that postal code within Edmonton. And so the school rose, the postal code rose, but Edmonton in general was falling. Um, 
And so um, we'll see uh, these uh, 22 to 30 schools so far. You know, there's spotty reporting from different school boards. We'll see the community prevalence rise from the school outbreaks. Um, I also included, uh, let's see, um, an article from Adam Toy, who I see is on the call. So I'm uh, sorry to make the reporter part of the story, uh, but Adam's done some great work uh, on consolidating the information from EPSB and other schools. And I just wanted to note, so we're looking at, you know, roughly 25 schools so far. When uh, Education Minister Adriana Lagrange prohibited schools from mandating masks at any school for any period of time um, on February 8th, one of her uh, well, the only really evidence she had in her letter is that the peak Omicron school closures was 29 and that they were down to four. Uh, and as a result, she felt it was safe to um, prohibit masks. But, you know, two things are happening then. One is that um, contact tracing for schools was not happening for months. And then PCR testing for people under 70 adopt. So cases fell and the official count of PCR confirmed, lab confirmed cases in schools disappeared. So the number falling from 29 to 4 um, was artificial, um, gaming the numbers by stopping PCR testing of students. But we see now, it was 29 the peak in January, we see now from the reporting that Kira and Adam and other good reporters are doing um, that the uh, numbers are back up at that same level again. Uh, it's just uh, the Alberta government is um, describing it as a mysterious respiratory illness as opposed to what it really is. Um, the last uh, thread or the last tweet that I put up into the nest is from June, where I pointed out that Alberta Health hasn't updated its healthcare capacity graph since the 28th of May. Um, and then a few weeks after that, they just stopped providing that um, healthcare capacity graph completely. And they misled us that that information was now available from AHS, but it uh, never was. Um, AHS uh, never provided an up-to-date um, measure of non-ICU uh, hospital capacity utilization, either in COVID or, or from COVID or from non-COVID patients. And um, I provide three links that tweet. Uh, one is to the former uh, COVID stats page that used to provide the healthcare capacity. Uh, the other I provide is to the AHS quarterly reporting, which still hasn't changed. So we're still, the last quarterly report we're getting from AHS on the 17 or so key measures of our healthcare system's health itself uh, hasn't been updated since the second fiscal quarter um, of uh, the 2020. 2021-2022 year. So it's um, from the end of March to the end of June 2022, which was reported around November of 2021. So their standard um, quarterly reporting that comes out a couple of months after the quarter ends hasn't happened um, for over a year. Oh, well, for a year. Um, and then the last part is the Health Quality Council of Alberta which was providing a quarterly report um, under the emergency department section of their focus, healthcare focus, um, under the hospital occupancy chart in the emergency department 
section of Health Quality Council of Alberta's focus. And recently, a couple of weeks ago, they updated to the first calendar quarter, so January through March of 2022. And if you look at those graphs, you can look at it by large urban hospitals, trauma, large urban hospitals, non-trauma, medium uh, urban hospitals, and children's hospitals. And all of the graphs are showing the first quarter of 2022 is worse than what the Premier and Health Minister were telling us was happening with hospital um, occupancy or hospital capacity utilization. So, um, yeah, Health Quality Council of Alberta, it appears independent, but it reports to the Minister, uh, just like the AHS does. Um, So uh, they have a bit of a mindset of being an independent view, uh, but... Um, uh, like AHS and like Alberta Precision Labs, uh, they also report to the same minister and can have the same problems in being able to disclose information. Thanks. That's interesting. So what you're saying is that um, they were telling us it was uh, um, not as bad as it actually was. Uh, I thought it was uh, really telling um, in Adam Toy's tweet, uh, Fred, he had mentioned that uh, wastewater data, there wasn't much for influenza yet in the community, but there's plenty of RSV, common cold, and COVID-19 circulating. So um, just kind of interesting how things have really uh, progressed. I don't know if Adam said plenty. I think Adam interviewed Craig Jenny, who's an infectious... Oh, sorry, not plenty. Yeah. Sorry, just said, yeah. but there's RSV. Sorry, I... I yeah, I, I typed it wrong. Dr. Jenny said there is a little bit of RSV. Um, there is a little bit of... In, well, I, I know that Dr. Jenny said there's a little bit of RSV, um, mm-hmm. but uh, Dr. Jenny said that um, really this is um, this is COVID-19. And yeah. uh, it's... If I... Adam would know better, and... Uh, well, I provide the link to the article so you can see um, Adam's interview with Dr. Jenny. I don't want to try and characterize what Dr. Jenny said myself. Yeah, no, it's... Uh, I know all of us over here are always so impressed with Adam's work and, uh, you know, we always thank him so much. Uh, we have another speaker. John looks like he's calling from all the way in Nova Scotia. Hi, actually New Brunswick. So. Oh, New Brunswick, sorry. <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm actually uh, with uh, POP New Brunswick, but I, I lived I in Alberta. So. I lived in Edmonton for three years, so I always keep Alberta close to my heart. Um, I just had a question uh, regarding the bivalent vaccines. Uh, I know we're still a ways off in Canada from getting that approved, or the BA4, BA5 version approved. Uh, I'm gu- I guess I'm wondering, I actually took it upon myself, I went down to Maine and I explained that I was just visiting the States, but if I could get the BA4, BA5 bivalent, I would like to, and they said, absolutely, no problem, we, we vaccinate Canadians all the time. <laughs> and uh, But I guess my question is, is the idea that once BA4, BA5 bivalent comes available, that that would sort of replace the BA1 bivalent? Like, is one really more advantageous to the other, or do they both work relatively the same? So from the data that I've seen, like, I'm not a medical professional, I just keep up on Twitter and vax hunt, but from the data I've seen, the BA4 slash 5 does have a slight advantage over BA1, so I would think that that would replace that, but um, we don't really have an idea of what the next variant could be after all these Omicron ones kind of weasel their way out. So it, who knows what will end up um, being more advantageous in the future too, right? It's always a little bit tricky to know what the future will bring. I don't know if Gazia has more thoughts on that as well. 
But yeah, the U.S. has been great at vaccinating Canadians. I know in Alberta here, we've had a bunch of people go down to Montana and they're like, yeah, sure, come on down, book a day with us. I did really see nice. that Markham Hislop went down uh, to get his bivalent down there too. So it's, uh, yeah, there's there's a lot of folks that are doing that now. And I think it's really speaking to, um, you know, the state of public health um, here that, you know, it's so quietly announced and no one really knows. Um, and we're always, you know, the last and the least to get it done here in Alberta. Um, yeah, like literally have to attack or harass the government here to get anything vaccine-wise. Really, and this is why we have a customer support line for uh, for vaccines, right? <laughs> that is the vac centers. Yeah. So okay. So was there anyone else that had any comments or thoughts or anything they wanted to contribute to the conversation tonight? Um, you know, a lot was covered. I had a few notes put down um, in regards to, you know, like we were talking about schools and, you know, it's it's so funny because I had the same tweet that uh, Zayed had put in the nest um, already up and ready to go. Um, you know, there's also a, a really great um, commentary from, um, uh, shoot, um, Chris Galloway with uh, Friends of Medicare about, you know, all the red alerts and things um, that are going on right now, too. Um, you know, so there's, there's lots of great tweets up in that nest. Um, oh, Zayad, you had your hand up? Yeah, I wanted to um, um, sort of comment on two trends that I'm seeing happening this fall. Um, one being healthcare workers saying uh, the actual load on our hospitals is being understated. Uh, we're as bad as we ever were, or as bad as we were during the Delta wave in the fall of 2021, we're as bad as we were um, in January of 2022, when our hospitals were slammed with patients. Uh, and they're saying that it's happened more in the pediatric ages. Um, uh, and they're also saying, look not only for um, hospitalizations, which are kind of covered up, but look at long COVID and um, the estimates between 10 and 30%, depending on how you define the symptoms or how long after the initial infection you look. Um, this, uh, you know, the, the professionals and the scientists that I'm learning for are screaming about that, that, look, our, our kids are getting long-term disabilities. Uh, we, we are not following a precautionary principle that we shouldn't be infecting our kids. Uh, the kids are being infected over the last couple of months, so... You know, it's not like we have 10 years of data, but what we're seeing already is, is frightening enough. So I'm kind of seeing two themes. Uh, one is parents um, uh, advocating for better indoor air quality protection in schools uh, and also for masking. Um, and the other is healthcare workers as far as they can go without uh, angering their employers, saying that... Um, uh, don't don't be um, comforted by the lack of statistics on what's happening. It's as bad as it was uh, yeah. at any time in the pandemic. Yeah, and thanks for that last comment. I you know I would I would I would emphasize that um, um, particularly you know that we hear a lot about that and you know we're we're kind of working in the background with Pop ID and and uh on various things and of course you know yeah that's 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 i would emphasize that for sure that that's uh 
not being known. And I, there is a tweet up in the nest from a anonymous peds nurse. Um, and she is, she is from Alberta. Um, you know, talking about, uh, how in her 18 years of nursing, she's never seen it as bad, um, uh, with the bed pressure like this September. So, you know, what I would say, you know, as, as patients, uh, of the system, you know, I think that we have the power to, um, you know, make our stories known where we feel comfortable and, and really speak to, yes, you know, um, you know, speak to the, what you've seen in the hospital and, um, you know, while also holding space for our, our, our physicians and our, all, all, and our nurses and that as well. Right. So, um, definitely, you know, continue to, 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 to speak up about that. Right. And, 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 and for everyone that does have, you know, loved ones or anything like that in the hospital, you know, don't hesitate to talk about your experiences in hospital. Right. So, um, Zaya, do you have another comment? Yeah, I wanted to share some advice from the ABC Science Cooperative based in North Carolina, United States, um, who have continued on their study of masking effectiveness in schools um, that they started uh, in the school year that went from the fall of 2020 into the summer of 2021. And then they continued that in the summer of 2021. Um, they haven't been able to pull together their data yet for Omicron, but they have... Um, um, alpha and delta um, variant results. And even with a, a flat mask or a procedural mask in schools when there's universal masking, or what they call two-way masking, they're okay. seeing uh, a one-third to one-fourth reduction in cases. Um, and more importantly for some people, um, masking allows school to continue, allows classes yeah. to continue so they very much support the primacy of getting kids in school for social and educational and equity reasons. And they're saying the way to do that is to allow masking to occur uh, at school board's discretion or the public health's discretion, um, depending on the state of the local situation. And so, you know, we're looking at these 25 to 30 uh, schools with over 10% um, sick kids in, in Alberta. Um, and at the risk of that, um, exploding into the community, you wouldn't have that if you had um, masking uh, in the schools. And you can take a small outbreak in a school and stop it by implementing masking. So what they found is during Alpha, when there was universal masking, the secondary attack rate was under 1%. So, you know, an attack rate or secondary attack rate is, you know, we go to, to um, a company party and there's 60 people there, and in the weeks after we learn 40 people got COVID. Uh, yeah. And, you know, that's a 67% secondary attack rate. And, you know, that kind of number is not with um, Alpha, it's under 1%. With Delta, it's under 2%. And so when you have, when you don't have an education minister who's prohibiting schools from implementing masks in any school for, for any period of time, you can't stop an outbreak from growing to the point where it shuts down classes and shuts down schools. And, you know, whatever your perspective on masks are as a parent, uh, you want your kids to, you know, in general, you want your kids to go to school and you don't have to take time off work to stay home to look after kids. And then, then kids come into more risk when they're home because they mix with other kids in ways that are less safe than at school. So um, I guess what I'm saying is, you know, we have a lawsuit that occurred. We had a hearings in August and we're waiting for the judgment, but 
at whatever level possible, whether it's with your school boards or with your province, push for the ability for school boards to be able to bring in masks in order to arrest outbreaks and prevent schools from shutting down and kids from you know getting stuck at home and being under high risk, uh, uh, mixing socially um, in less uh, safe environments than in a classroom. Totally, yes. you know, and it's uh, I find it amazing how we go to more more effort to protect against uh, peanuts in, in, in classrooms than we are with COVID. Um, it's just mind blowing. And I mean, even, you know, we should, you know, it's it, causing an equity issue. Right. And, and, and that's just, it's just not, not acceptable. And yeah, um, it actually looks like we've got Adam uh, up here as well. Um, Adam, good evening. Yeah. Hi, good evening, everyone. Um, just wanted to, uh, first of all, thank everybody who's spoken before to share uh, their findings, especially Dr. Gasparovich and uh, Zayed, who we've spoken before uh, on a variety of stories. also want to thank you for all the kind words that you've said about the work that I've done. I wanted to um, put, a lot, put out a little encouragement uh, for anybody listening uh, who might want to share their stories, see things uh, that are of concern uh, with regards to COVID, since that's the topic du jour. Um, contact reporters, share your stories with reporters. Uh, we cannot, um, speaking for, uh, uh, myself and my colleagues, uh, it, 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 at all stations, we can't really do this job unless, uh, unless we have people who are willing to talk. Uh, you all know the, the voices who we, who we speak to on the regular, um, we, we're always looking for, for more folks to come forward, to share their stories, to, to share uh, their, what they see and or hear. It doesn't always have to be um, fully public, but we encourage that. Uh, but yeah, without, without uh, from the public, it's harder for us to do our jobs. That's all I wanted to say. So thank you. That's awesome. Thanks, Adam, for really, you know, being a, a really good advocate for, for you know, everything COVID, you know, in the last few years, it's been, um, you know, it's really, a, I know a lot of us follow your reporting quite closely. So thank you again for all your help. And uh, yeah, continue to continue to, uh, for everyone else, you know, continue to tell your stories, because it's really, really important that, uh, you know, the truth about how the system's operating is, is, you know, really important to get out there. So Cool. Uh, well, it looks like we uh, we've kind of run to the end here, and we're actually kind of running out of time anyway. We're kind of planning for an hour uh, as it is. Um, folks really want to thank all of you, uh, of course, uh, Dr. Gasparovitz, uh, Jenea, and Zayad. Thank you all for for your contributions. Um, you know, it, I think uh, you know, just like public health, you know, it, it takes a community to get our to 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 get ourselves through this right and and uh you know this is just you know having conversations like this are super important you know if you did find it useful you did find it ha um if you did find tonight really uh was was good for you um definitely let us know um things that you might want to hear about uh stuff like that in a future in a future um space you know that that might be a um you know suggestions and that would of course really appreciated and um we're just trying to get uh you know some more engagement and, and, and really get the conversation started again in the community so um yeah so with that i guess i should end with the official protect our province uh salute um stay safe alberta remember covid19 is airborne
where the best respirator you have access to and vaccines are still saving lives. Thanks, everyone. Have a wonderful evening, and um, hopefully we can chat again soon.